Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says Everyone. This week's poet is Rob Wilson, who's from New South Wales. I caught up with him from what sounded like a very beautiful spot in the Blue Mountains. You've got birds tweeting in the background there. And we chat about his book, Free Will and the Clouds, which came out in 2014. And we talk about how the book came together, what Rob does to support himself as he writes. And then we dive into a poem by his friend from Wollongong Uni, Benjamin Freighter, and that poem's called To Kill the Prime Minister. Hope you enjoy this one. I was lucky enough to review your book for Plumwood Mountain um, last year at some point, I think it was. And on the back cover, there's this fantastic line from the Australian poet Michael Farrell, and he says that your work, or possibly you, are like a cloud in tight black jeans. (laughs) How good is that? How does it feel to be described that way? Well, actually, it was it was quite a quite the compliment. Um, I'm a big fan of Farrell's. I think he does incredibly good, great work. Like, uh, there's not that many people that I really sort of seek as as writers you know but he, he's uh he's doing some of the best writing in australia at the moment definitely but uh it, it was a sort of double compliment because that's a sort of line ripped off from uh the russian poet mayakovsky uh there was a poem called a cloud in trousers and um i believe he's kind of ripping that off a little bit so of course, <laughs> my, of course. I my, just my, <laughs> Oh, so uh, yeah, I took that as a big compliment. You know, I, I I've got a lot of time for the for the Russian futurists, and uh, yeah, that was it was it was nice. And I never thought of myself as a as a. I wasn't sorry. Yeah, it wasn't Mayakovsky. Was it? Yes, it was. Yeah. There's, it's all good. Uh, I didn't even get it was a reference, so you're you're ahead of me. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's Mayakovsky and Kleb, Klebnikov, the two guys I always mix up, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky who was talking about. Yeah. Right. And if he wasn't, then that's. Uh, extra strange but uh yeah that's I, I i had a lot of really good fortune with that book um alan alan wern from uh from grand parade was my one of my poetry teachers at university and uh he called me out of nowhere and just said have you got a book's worth of stuff and i said yes i do and away it went it was as easy as that the work was done and uh, i just sort of you know, got, got the pats on the back for it, which was really nice. So, but you had a chat book out before. Was there work True. in uh, in the book Free Will in the Clouds that came from the chat book or? Yeah, a, a couple of poems. Okay. Uh, a couple. That was quite a long time ago that the I, I put our chat book out. We, we actually started a press, like a label, in order to, to put that, that book and, and Ben Freider's chat book out. Uh, my book was called Camera Farm and his was called uh, Bug House Meat. And we, we started at a little label, which we had high hopes for. We were going to do all this great stuff, but basically we just put those two books out um, with the assistance of uh, James Taylor, an Australian poet and publisher who runs a label called Monogene. I haven't actually seen James Taylor in a very long time, but he really he helped us quite a bit, along with everybody else that was at Wollongong Uni at the time. Um, and James was a fellow; he wasn't teaching. 
Um, but he he had an office and he, he really he backed us. He liked both of our, our work and uh, really gave us a big hand um, putting those out. But yeah, there was a little bit of crossover. Yeah, right. With the with the, but but t- only the tiniest amount. I put that book out in two thousand and three, and then uh, Free Will in the Clouds obviously didn't come out until two thousand fourteen. So there's a little bit of a gap. Um, so lots of the work I didn't feel was sort of contemporary enough. You know, I was bored of it. Yeah, so right. It didn't uh, it didn't cross over? I just you know I'd, I'd read and sort of performed those poems a million times and was just sick of them and they didn't I, I was going out of my way as a younger writer to uh to sort of defer sort of sense you know <laughs> I, I was trying to uh make it hard for the reader on purpose that was kind of yeah. <laughs> as obnoxious as that sounds I really I was you know I was trying my hardest to, to sound weird you know no that's but, something that that's one of the things that I like most about your work is that you interrupt the reader's expectations at the line level, at the poem level, and definitely at the title level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, camera farm. I yeah. yeah. Just it's such a it's such a curveball. I don't know. Where do you come up with these titles? What are you are you doing? Word dice? What's happening there? No, no, nothing quite so random. Um, there's always a meaning behind it, but I guess that was the at that stage that was sort of my mo. I was like. I was reading a lot of at that stage at the at the at the stage of the camera farm poems. Um, I got that from a title of a poem within that book called Camera Farm Mishaps, <laughs> which you know I just write these little titles down, and that's all. That's the first thing I do. I mean, I don't go into writing a poem with any idea of what's going to happen, or of subtext, or or. Uh, meaning in any on any level I really I just write a title down and it's almost like pulling pulling a blind down you know I've got this sort of title and everything just sort of pours down from that it's it was it was very automatic to start with because I was when I when I really got into poetry that was the stuff that I really connected with the people that were the sort of surrealist dadaist kind of uh automatic writing and and sort of chance games and things like that but I was trying to mimic that. I, I wasn't doing that. I was just trying to sound like that while writing something that was sort of cohesive, but only to me. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So it's kind yeah. of <laughs> intentional uh, experimentalism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I, I just because I'd, I'd read so much experimental stuff. Uh, I, I that was. You know, it's like if you're in a band, you know, you listen to a certain type of music, it's going to sort of bleed over if you're making music. So I, yeah, I, I started to try and sort of sound like Andre Breton and, and Arp and, you know, the the, the sort of uh, European Renaissance, the sort of uh, 20th century Renaissance uh Writers, all of whom were, well, most of whom were, were multidisciplinary artists, and I, I really liked that. I, I, uh, I would have been a painter in another life. I actually really enjoy painting, and uh, and was sort of had to pick a pick a direction almost uh, after high school, and uh, writing was the direction I went with. I wonder how many poets there would be if you really sat them down 
gave him a glass of wine would say, yeah, I, I just, I wish I could have been a painter, but because <laughs> I definitely fall into that category for sure. My best friend in yeah. high school was a fantastic artist and I just never felt I could approach what she was doing. So I just started writing words instead. Yeah, that that's a big thing. I mean, Ben Frodo, he's, uh, or you said to in an email the other day that you'd just done a show on Ben Frodo. Or yeah, that's right. Just, just came out this week. Yeah, with Verity Love. Oh wow, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to it. Yes, um, good chat. I yeah, he's uh, he was a yeah a very interesting guy, but he he ne- he couldn't draw to save his life. <laughs> he had the most horrible handwriting ever. But his best friend was when I met him was this fellow. Habib Zaytune, who was a, a painter. from They'd gone to high school together and, and sort of palled around. And Habib was as good a painter as Ben was a poet. I mean, they were, and it was that same thing. I met Habib and I was going to a couple of art school interviews. And I met him when I was at Wollongong going to my writing interview and he was going to the art school. And he just had a portfolio bag full of <laughs> process diaries. And I was just looking at everything he'd done. And I said, you didn't actually bring any work. And he said, no, 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 it's just the diaries, just photos. Just And he had about 50 of them just crammed into this big black portfolio bag. And it was one of those moments where I went, oh, man, I'm not very good. <laughs> like <laughs> he, he, he could do anything. And it's, it's like that sort of Picasso thing. Everyone goes, oh, he's an abstract artist. And you're like, no, 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 but he could do anything. He could do representational. He could do non-representational. Just had that skill, that sort of clarity of, of sort of uh, of purpose, he could, he could he just was just art it was coming out of him, you know. And Habib was the same way. So we sort of us three powed around a little bit when Habib was in town, and and yeah, he 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 is one of those people that just makes you look at yourself and go, oh, <laughs> I, I can't do what you do at all. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I always felt that with writing that I didn't have that block that I didn't have to try very hard I think (laughs) that was the appealing thing for me you know I could really just knock these things out without thinking too hard about them or without editing too much and yeah yeah I I think you said in your interview with Red Room Company that it came early to you this understanding of poetry and it came quite naturally and I really wanted to ask you about because obviously there's that, there's the natural talent that kind of bubbles away and sustains you. But then there has to be, behind a book like Free Will in the Clouds, there just has to be hours and hours and months and months of work. So I'm wondering yes. what, <laughs> you know, how does that interplay between inspiration and work operate in your writing life? Uh, that's interesting. I See, all, all of that Free Will in the Clouds, Clouds writing is is quite a ways behind me now. You know, that was stuff that I'd finished writing maybe three years ago, maybe more. There might have been one or two that snuck in from from later later days, closer to the publication, but uh, lots of that was sort of locked down. And to be honest, I'm not the hardest working poet you've ever met. I really, I don't have thousands and thousands of poems. And that was another thing with Ben Frader, you know, he he would work and work and work, and he had just thousands of pages of stuff. And when, because I I was a part of the team that edited his book, 
uh, after he'd passed away. And uh, he was definitely one of those people that made me go, wow, shit, I don't work hard enough. You know, he was making himself manic, not, not sleeping enough and working all hours. And yeah, I really, it, it, it's, you know, I've, I've explained it to people. It's like sneezing. <laughs> you just feel that sort of little tickle and you're like, oh, okay. And just blurt something down and put it away and go back to what you were doing. You know, nothing I write's longer than a page. Um, I really do just sort of knock these things out and then go back to them a couple of days later and look and go, you know, and that's it. Like it's, it's, uh, it's an afterthought. Um, and I've, I've tried to sort of apply myself in a way that, that means that I could write things that were quite a bit longer, but, uh, and, and I guess purposefully incorporate things in a sort of poetic way. But whenever I try, it doesn't seem right or natural to me. I'll go back and read the work and say, that's put on. You're trying to do that. So it's all very, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite sort of second nature. Yeah, right. So just, yeah. Yeah, I've heard little, it described as a little bit like making a pie crust. Like you can't overwork it. You can't knead for too long. Otherwise, it's all going to become solidified and all that goodness is just lost yeah i think you, you can it. definitely overwork yeah you can it's i mean similarly with painting i mean i think poetry and painting and and something like sculpture for instance are they're, they're very similar disciplines you it, it, finesse it, it plays a huge part mm. in in your in my approach anyway i i i can tell when i'm trying to write and when I'm writing, you know, trying to write, I, 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 it, it, I can sort of feel that it's not going to work. But for some reason, when I just sort of switch my conscious mind off and just sort of uh, scratch these things out, you know, I'll come back a couple of days later. And if I impress myself, then I think it's ready for somebody else to see. I almost have to sort of forget that I've done it and then go back and discover it and go, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange process. No, I mean, it's really interesting because you're describing something that I think almost every creative writing teacher and, and any kind of, you know, capital S serious poet would advise against, which is kind of... Um, taking those first drafts at face value almost and, and saying this is like the first thought, best thought thing. Um, and which was yeah. a huge part of my education, you know, yeah. that sort of uh, postmodern American idea of, you know, the sort of Zen, you know, that where they were trying to understand, they were studying Buddhism, all, all you sort of Kerouacs and Ginsbergs and the like. I mean, they were, they were my first poets. They were the people that I read first and went, wow, you know, and that, I mean, first thought, best thought is a nice idea, but, uh, you know, if I would have try and publish my first drafts, no, they wouldn't be any good. You really, but, but what I like to think, I like to think of it as the part of me that writes and the part of me that edits are two very different people. And I almost leave things for the editor it's sort of lying around. Um, and it's, it really feels like the opposite parts of my brain that are working working uh, on the poems sort of two strangers you know god 
I wish I wish I could make my editor a stranger to my writer, <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm a copywriter and ah. an editor and, and, you know, working with other people's words all the time, that editor is basically never off duty. Um, yeah. So I'm going to try and, and emulate a bit of what you're talking about there. But um, <laughs> so going back a bit, so it sounds like the way you're talking about your work is that it's happening almost in the, in the cracks in between times. And I'm wondering what's happening for you in the rest of your life. How are you sustaining poetry? Because we don't talk about this much. Um, people that write poetry <laughs> tend to focus on the poetry and, and we tend to kind of skim over the bit like how we're actually making it all work, how we're making life work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what does that look like no, in, in your case? Well, uh, I... I've worked in a f couple of different industries, I suppose, but it's always words. It's always word-related. Um, uh, I, at the moment, I'm working doing subtitles for the deaf. Um, it was something that I've done since I left university, basically. So just typing out, transcribing TV shows, basically. Um, which I think has had a huge impact on the way I write. Uh, it's, it's uh, from the early days when I was sort of at university and I was trying very hard to be serious and then I was sort of out in the real world and, and, you know, like you, dealing with other people's words all the time. But it's in a much more detached way. You know, it's, it's uh, I, I'm literally just listening and typing and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's almost the the poetry is almost like a, a reaction against that because it is it's a terribly boring job, but uh, that that uh, it does sort of inspire me in a way it inspires me to to try and do something that might get me out of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I've worked as a copy editor and copywriter and uh, you know I've, I, I've wrote uh, music reviews for a long time, things like that, um, just magazine articles, things like that, bits and pieces everywhere. But um, those, that's usually just to keep money in my pocket. Yeah, I don't take any real pleasure in that. Yeah, I don't, I don't take any, any pleasure in, in writing music reviews. I'm, I, in fact, I found it really hard to write pleasant reviews. <laughs> like, I, I mean, that's the, the, the thing that people talk about, isn't it? You know, it's, it's really easy to write a, a nasty review because it's kind of fun to sort of rip into people. But at the same time, it's pretty hollow. Like you're sort of taking somebody else's artwork and saying, "Oh well, here's the problem." Um, and yeah, it's not it's not a it's not something that I felt I could you know I could do every day. Um, but re really reach in and sort of keep keep just delivering this this you know these opinions and be like, "Oh, I'm the guy that knows about this," you know. I and I it it's it sort of it, it, chipped away at me a little bit so I sort of uh, I got out of that sort of magazine world and uh, have been just sort of uh, doing the subtitling ever since and and uh, working on some fiction actually just recently yeah, so right. um, yeah um, it's 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 quite early days I'm, I'm writing a longer piece of fiction at the moment but uh, that's this is the first time I've really mentioned it I've sort of been we're just working away really quietly at it. Aha. Uh -huh. um, so he's mentioning that, uh, it now. That's sort of like, <laughs> is that a bit? Well, it's uh, tangible now. Yeah, yeah. People it's know It's tangible. Now. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, I've done. I've done. I've had a couple of goes at writing fiction, and I guess I was never satisfied with it. And I'm I'm writing something at the moment where I'm getting to do a lot of research and and getting to really dig into it, and it's kind of fun. You know, it's 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 more like writing a thesis or something, where you you sort of need to keep learning in order to sort of spur the writing on. But uh, it, it, like I was saying before, with the sort of separate parts of my brain, you know, the the the, the bit that writes fiction is seems quite opposite to, to the bit that writes poetry. Yeah, um, it's such a different thing. It feels so different. Yeah. 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 Grinding grinding it out, you know, I really, I, like I said, I never wrote, really wrote anything longer than a page, longer than a sort of A4 page uh, in poetry. So to, to come and try and sort of transplant myself into, into fiction a little bit. Um, I mean, I had an idea and, and I just thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll see what happens. And, you know, I'm sort of 20,000 words into it at the moment and it's still chugging along and it's still quite early, early on in the story. And I'm like, okay, this is good. You know? And it's, it's quite satisfying to have a big thick manuscript <laughs> to sort of look at and hold and go, wow, this is huge. You know? But, uh, you know, the, the it feels very different from the from the poetry. I, I feel the intensity of a poem. It, it doesn't it doesn't need to be that long, you know. I feel like it's a picture. I, I, I feel like it's something you should be able to look at and read backwards and forwards and from the middle and you know. It, but we, yeah, fiction is much much more of a much more of a grind. I can imagine. This is very exciting getting to hear about this, but I'm also <laughs> I'm relieved that you're still writing poems in there because uh, we're not going to lose you to fiction. That's that's not okay. Nah, <laughs> nah. Well, I mean, I, I, there's always been that sort of there's almost like two camps, <laughs> and you know, I, I, uh, Ben Frader was he he would hate to hear this. He would be yelling at me. What would he um, be saying? Oh, ah, Rob, ah. You know, like he would be appalled because he was so firmly in the poetry camp and and sort of sneered at fiction writers, you know. He was the real, like he was 100% poetry all day long, you know. He, he really did just, that's, that's all he did. And that's all he talked about and that's all he wanted to do, you know. He saw it as, as being like a priest and uh, and the world was his congregation, you know. He, uh, yeah. yeah, he was the real deal, the real deal, that boy. Well, we better hear the poem of his that you, you wanted to bring along today. And I think this might be the first time I've heard it, so I'm going to try and just take it in and, and hopefully say something intelligent at the end, but we'll see how we go. To kill the Prime Minister, organise a group of angry poets, dress up in green rags and hover over his body. To kill the Prime Minister, show him the wall crawling up a bug. Put him in a bright den to watch the lamb devour a lion. He will require a change of clothes. To kill the Prime Minister, rouse and provoke angry hermit farmers to brandish ramhorn revolvers at the sky, ready to take the sun. To kill the Prime Minister, hit him with the shellless tortoise of your mother's dream. To kill the Prime Minister... Intolerably amplify through a wine bottle the sound of your forbidden woman when you touched her starfish. Tell the Prime Minister that you have also touched the starfish of his mistress. 
to kill the Prime Minister, arrange a mafia in lime cheesecloth suits to sing the national anthem sideways and kick the temples in. To kill the Prime Minister, bunch and present him with the terrorist flowers forensics plucked from bombs delivered in antique suitcases. To kill the Prime Minister, tell Wollongong University students to slide into salamander skins and take to the trees. With or without the wind, we will soar, soar and soar again. To kill the Prime Minister, lock him in the cupboard with the ravenous Moses. To kill the Prime Minister, throw him headfirst into the moth pit. To kill the Prime Minister, send him the eels of your bed and gift box the bird that stung your eye as the sun rose. A sun rose is a very beautiful animal. I would scale and eat you for it. To kill the Prime Minister, let him know that black-suited baboons have deciphered the cabinet and escaped. Let him know also that an old man with a long white beard waits under a newspaper prepared to eat his children if he fails to deliver that Rubens painting to my caravan door by 3am. To kill the Prime Minister, tie him up naked with seaweed to the apex of a driftwood triangle Flog him with eel spines, slap him with stingray, unzip and unleash the 50-year plague of hermit crabs. To kill the Prime Minister, I will push my arm through the keyhole and transmute from fish to dove to spider. Okay. Uh, ben Freda was a really good friend of mine. Uh, we we just hit it off from, from day one of university. And he was writing things that I could never even imagine writing. And I think that was that was the beauty of it. We were kind of coming from opposite places and we really appreciated each other's work. And when he wrote To Kill the Prime Minister, he brought it into to one of our poetry classes. And uh, I just I remember him reading it. <laughs> he used to get so into it, you know, he really... Uh, on that recording, you can hear it. He he really launches. He rips in, and uh, it was a it was a a political poem, and he was never that overtly political. I mean, he was very rarely of the earth. He kind of he wrote for his own sort of little universe, uh, but this was about something tangible, about a real person in the real world having all sorts of unearthly things happening to him. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, uh, one of our teachers, uh, John, John A. Scott, the, the novelist and poet, uh, John said to him, oh, you'll have to be careful. The CIA will be after you. You know, jokingly, completely joking. And Ben kind of lost his mind. You know, he, he had a little bit of a panic about that. He really thought that they were going to come after him for threatening to kill the Prime Minister. And uh, that was Ben, you know. <laughs> wow. He, he, he just, he was, yeah. He, he just had his own little universe. And, and uh, I always found that poem interesting because it was sort of of the world and of 
an Australia that everybody could understand. You know, everybody knew who the Prime Minister was. And I guess a lot of times Ben was writing in a way that most people couldn't understand. Well, they, they wouldn't understand the abstraction for what it was. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was always... And he wrote really great refrains as well, and I think that poem's a really great example of that. Um, the earliest... He was the, one of the first people I ever saw write refrains after sort of someone like Allen Ginsberg uh, and, and, and really run with it and do it well um, instead of making it sort of poetry that sounds like poetry. He was, he was using it for its almost like wind up and then whack, you know, he hit you with it. And then he'd come and then whack and he'd hit you again. He had, he had really, a really great understanding of, of dynamics. And that, those poems, I think. And a poem like, like Yek, uh, which was one of his really early things that I was around for. Um, he, he really he'd smack you around the face with a refrain. And, uh, you know, he took great pleasure in that. I, I really didn't think he could put a foot wrong with his, with his approach and his attitude because he, he really did just sort of soak himself so wholly in it that, uh, you know, he, was, he, could, he could be nothing else. So, it, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, remember the Asterix books? Yes. Asterix and Obelix? He was like the Obelix. You know, he'd fall in the potion as a baby and he was just 100% just poetry all the time. Oh, okay. um, he lived and breathed it. But, um, yeah, he, he really would. He put that po poet on his tax return and stuff, you know. He was, <laughs> yeah, he really, he really believed it. What do you think would be a good way to take care of somebody who wanted to to write, to make art of any kind, um, and who also had to manage a, a mental illness. Do you think that that's something that, you know, there, there could be some kind of role for government support or community support or, like, is there is there something in the, the way that we support artists that you can see as, as failing Ben and failing the people who have situations like his to deal with he used poetry to sort of write himself out of these things you know um and a lot of the times the mental health professionals were saying no this isn't good for you but like i said he was you know he, he thought he saw himself as a priest of it as, as a sort of priest of poetry and uh there was no way you were going to get him to stop but uh, with, I worked with the Red Room Company a, a few years back and went into prisons and, and did a couple of poetry classes with the prisoners. Um, and I guess in, in a similar way, but in a, in a completely different way, as in they're completely uninitiated people and we were bringing them into a poetry class sort of scenario, it was really, really good. I mean, they... I, I sort of dealt with... There were young men um, for the first class that I did, all under 25, and none of whom had, you know, picked up a book with the intention of reading it. But they were obviously just really bored. You know, they were in jail and they were bored. And I, I had, they, it was like an English class, so they had a teacher there, and afterwards we went and had lunch with Joe Featherstone and Gareth and all the people that were working on that. And... Um, the English teacher came up to me and said, they really love that. 
And I was like, I, I couldn't really tell. And she was like, no, 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 it was, it was great. And it really helped them. And, uh, it's, I think it's underutilized the, the arts and, and sort of, uh, political policy. It's sort of seen as this ugly stepchild, you know, that, that they sort of have to fund, or, you know, I guess that's the political situation at the moment is it's such, it's such a, it's, it's a difficult life. Um, as I've definitely found out trying to dedicate yourself to something that doesn't automatically make you money. Yeah, that's exactly where I was heading with that question because I think it does feel like in Australia at the moment the arts are, yeah, really a, an inconvenience. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, the sort of uh, weird little burden. I mean, it's, Australia's a funny country in that, uh, you know, I've been – I, I married an American woman last year, so I'm sort of seeing Australia through her eyes because I'm having to sort of explain everything to her. Oh, this is – don't worry about that. That happens all the time. But, uh, you know, we have gone from, I guess, the 70s, which were quite sort of uh, – you know, had sort of Gough Whitlam in power and lots of money going to the arts and, you know, into film and that kind of thing. And then we've sort of slowly swung back through the 80s and 90s. And and here, we, like, it's quite a sort of... Financially, it's kind of a, a conservative time, you know. There's not a, there's not a lot of money going towards the arts. And and there there's a lot of really great stuff going on that is sort of being hindered by that, I feel. Um, uh, <laughs> Grant money, prize money, that kind of thing. I mean, things that would definitely help keep you head above water as an artist if you're really committed to sort of working in that field. Um, and, and as a result, the arts jobs are, are less and less. So it's, yeah, it really is. You've got to know people or you're in trouble, you know. You've got to, you've got to have a foot in that industry or a foot in that world and... Uh, yeah, it's disappointing. It's it seems that it has been in years past a hell of a lot easier to live a life where you're creating art and and not starve to death or have to get some terrible job in order to just sustain yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think probably if if you're hearing this, uh, if you're listening outside Australia probably listening to us talk about this you might be thinking oh come on what a couple of whinges like <laughs> what do you want you know you want some some living wage just to go off and be an artist but I think really what what I was kind of thinking and asking you that about Ben's situation and thinking about other other artists who even if they're not dealing with a situation as extreme as that it just would be nice to take the money problem away or lessen the question of money so that yeah you could just have that head above water feeling and hey yeah. maybe we might get a bit more good art out of that as well wouldn't that be nice well um, yeah i mean i i know that if i could afford to to work less i would produce more that's it's as simple as that and it really that is a depressing thought to me you know that, that time is 
I mean, I, I've I have a young daughter. I've just had a had a baby. She's seven months old now. Oh, congratulations! I have, I, yeah, thank you. I have to work. You know, I mean, I have to work to feed her. Um, so, I, but if if I could somehow, I mean, you know, I, I do I do see the point of somebody listening to this and going, oh Christ, you know, what a couple of whinges. But I think that there are that the trough is too small and there are too many heads in it. To to get even a look in at prize money, I mean, you already have to be established. You know, it's that sort of catch-22 thing. You know, you need experience, but how do you get experience without, you know, it, it, yeah, the, the, all, of, all of the prize money is still, it's still going to people in their 50s and 60s, you know. I mean, there are, there are sort of younger people coming up and coming through, but to the... I feel like the people that are winning the prizes are academics and and people who who really are sort of in it 100 in in a, in a lot of different aspects. Um, and I, I mean, how do you judge these things as well? I mean, that's that's another thing. But uh, I mean, and that's only one avenue. I, I I don't expect a living wage from the government to be a writer, no. But if there was a, you know, I I mean. There should be more opportunity for for teaching and things like that, and I guess that comes with more funding in that direction. And that doesn't seem to seem like it's going to be coming anytime soon. But uh, yeah, there just seem to be too many too many uh, too many people in the line in front of me. <laughs> well, this is the <laughs> thing, the right? It's like, and those people in the line in front of you are your peers. They're your mentors. They're the people you're looking up to and admiring their work. The people who you're talking about in the 50s and 60s getting the prize money deserve the prize money. No Mm. question. But Mm -hmm. it just means that like standing in the back of the queue just kind of sucks. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish the work that anybody's doing, but they came up through that period where Gough Willem, you know, <laughs> like they, they, of, of, of Australia giving a shit about the arts and they've kind of got that strength from having been able to work, I guess, you know, in that, in, during that period. And, um, I mean, but with, if we're talking about poetry, it's not exactly like it's ever been a dominant force, no, not in my lifetime anyway, you know, in, in the arts, it, it is, I mean, people, when I say that I write poetry, geez, the looks I get, you know, like people, it, it's like saying that you, you travel through time or something. People don't. And they're like, oh, so, you know, what rhymes with orange? And so, you know, it's like, they always say that. I know. <laughs> they I know. And, and, say and, that. So you're really good at rhyming words then, eh? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm a genius. Like, <laughs> no, it, it, I've never rhymed in a poem ever, maybe a half rhyme. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's such an alien sort of uh, concept to a lot of people because it is this weird little vegetable that you were forced to eat in high school. And most people don't, you know, they don't connect with it because it's taught with such a lack of passion. And and that's another, like the school syllabi, you know, boring, boring stuff. Like I understand that you can't give, you know, year nine students super complicated stuff to read because you've got to, got to, you know, give them a good background and go through Shakespeare and Keats and all that, you know. But uh, Australia's 
like if you were to take what most people thought of Australian poetry and compare it with what it actually is, there's a yawning gap of about 200 years, you know, because people just think of Banjo Patterson, you know. And then, like, and then back to at the start of our conversation, mentioning Michael Farrell, I mean, how mm-hmm. much further away can you get and, and how much more <laughs> yeah. interesting and vital and exciting? That's right. Um, That's right. I mean, and, and, and yeah. Pat, Pat, I'm, yet again, not raining crap down on, on Banjo Patterson. He, oh, look, he he'll, he'll be okay. well known for a reason. <laughs> yeah, he was well, he, he did his job at the time. And, and that was, but it, it really, it was sort of, you know, it's bush ballads. It's that sort of. Yeah, it, it is so old, you know that 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 format, and he's he's so well remembered because it's sort of, it's almost like a, a another little set of national anthems, and and they're sort of you know Dorothea McKellar and all that stuff, you know, it's all great, but it's so gone, like it's it is in we're so far back in history now. I remember studying poetry at university for the first couple of years and just being like, wow, I had no idea. You know, I had no idea how much brilliant stuff had been done all through history. Like, I mean, we, we studied the 19th and 20th centuries, I guess, probably most closely. And and just the, the, the poets that were coming out of every country you could imagine uh, with a different point of view and, uh, and just sort of the thing I love about poetry in that way is, is looking at something from, say, the, you know, the 30s or the 40s and it not being like a black and white photograph, you know, it doesn't look like some historical object. It looks like it's, if it's good, it looks fresh as the day it was written. And I really, you know, you find that moment that, that the poem is written in and, and if it's good, you get right inside that moment. And there's nothing quite like that. There's no communication on earth that can replicate that. It, it's it's a, it's a sort of thorough art form, you know. You're really getting... a because uh, you, you're getting rhythm and you're getting sort of mental pictures sort of delivered to you and but you really yeah you're really feeling that moment that they wrote and uh that that that's a real shortcut into into the you know a point in time yeah completely so when you were teaching these students in the prison how mm-hmm. did you what was your um strategy for kind of conveying that that passion to them did you have particular um, activities or particular poems that you shared? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I that was one of the first times I'd ever taught a poetry class. I haven't done it that much, but I've done it enough to sort of have a little routine, you know, a little a little introductory. And I I, I like uh, to read the Red Wheelbarrow um, by William Carlos Williams. Doesn't that because throw I think them it, completely? Aren't they like yeah. uh, not a poem? Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole point. Okay. It, it, it's a really good entry point to to sort of, I guess, postmodernism. Yeah. But okay. as far as poetry or modernist, postmodernist poetry, you can say, who has heard a poem? And, you know, they're all thinking of roses are red, violets are blue. And then you give them the red wheelbarrow. And I, I like to, you know, read, it's a, it's a very short poem and, and uh, they, I, I, it only mentions a few objects, right? It's very concise, that sort of imagistic sort of, um, here's a wheelbarrow, here's some chickens, you know. And then you say, what did you see when I read that out? And they say a farm and or a barn or, you know, like a, 
a sort of rural town or whatever. And I'm like, but I only mentioned chickens in a wheelbarrow. So much depends, you know, and they, they, you can see it click and open up in their heads that it's not fiction and it's not a song, you know, it, it's this thing that, yeah, uh, the way I like to differentiate between fiction and poetry is that fiction is its own world and poetry is of the world. And I think that that poem is such a beautiful little entry point into the world as, as poetry has defined it. Uh, it doesn't have to say much and you get everything, you know, and uh, that, that was always a great way to, to get people who'd never cracked a book with, with intent to, to look at something like that and go, shit, okay. That's not just, you know, uh, rhyming couplets. It's not Shakespeare. It's like a little picture, but instead of it having it, an edge, you get to see the rest of the world kind of around it. Yeah. Um, I love that. And that was fun. You know, you see that, you see those, those eyes kind of light up when they click, you know, <gasps> ah, you know, and not everybody's going to get it. And that's, that's cool. You know, you don't have to, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to come at, uh, poetry because it is so complex and it is so dominated by powerful minds, you know, um, but the best of it is simple and straightforward and cuts right to it and gives you the ability to 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 see what the poet sees and wants you to see. That's so good. I'm not going to let you go without reading one of your own poems. <laughs> okay. So any any one at all, but uh, hang on, I've got to grab my done. book. If I look at it and I'm like, wow, you know, like you're reading somebody else's. Like if I sh if I can sort of catch myself going sort of chuckling at something, then I'm like, okay, this is good. And with Superman Goes Crazy, I kind of actually was one of the first poems where I did a little bit of research. Like I don't tend to plan things or, or plan for things, but I thought I'm going to write a little a little grouping on uh, sort of nursery rhymes and 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 those sort of folk tales, and started reading a lot of those. And and this was the one on. Uh, which one was this? Uh, Hansel and Gretel. Oh, um, I didn't pick yeah, that up. Yeah, that's what that's, this is about. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that that. I mean, I didn't. It, I guess that's that's the whole point of my stuff. It doesn't matter what I think and what you get. You know, as long as you get something, and I think something, great. You know, it doesn't really matter if you don't. I don't think anybody's ever going to understand anybody one hundred percent. So I guess that was why my early poems were so sort of obfuscated because it was obfuscatory, I should say, because it was me going, well, you, you're not going to understand what I want to say exactly. So I'll give you a bunch of images and I'll see what it says to you. You know, that was more interesting, sort of seeing how somebody understood it, what they understood it to me to be that I that I was trying to say. Um, so with something like this, like I wasn't going, I'm going to rewrite Hansel and Gretel. It's just, I read <laughs> Hansel and Gretel and then was like, you know, it was reading the back, the background of that. And it was like, well, it's highly likely that this story was written about at this period of time where people literally couldn't afford to keep their kids and would sort of sell them or kill them, you know, <laughs> because they were going to die. You know, it was this sort of horrible iron age sort of middle of nowhere living in a shack and 
you know, your whole family's dying because you've got no way to pr- provide for them. So, you know, that because their parents in one of the early versions, a lot of these nursery rhymes are, and, and folk tales are really nasty and have sort of been cleaned up. And this is definitely one of them. Um, where the parents, the stepmother, uh, kicks them out of the house and sends them out into the forest. And, of course, they meet the witch. And uh, that was sort of that, that idea that parents would just abandon their children, you know, because they thought they'd do better out in the, out in the forest. <laughs> that was, like, horrifying to me. That, that was enough of a thing to become sort of a folk tale that has survived to this day, you know. That's really grim. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Superman in that context is just everyone, you know. Superman was just just the, the picture that I wanted to... It was the, the character that I, I, for some reason, used. And, yeah, I, as I said before, I, I wrote the title before I wrote anything else, and I'd read all this background, and I just went, bleh, and just sort of knocked that out. I didn't change this too much from the first draft either. Okay, this is Superman Goes Crazy. As I was travelling to St Ives, I met a man with serious emotional problems. It's the distance between us, I say. It's insurmountable. But they had been right, it seemed, all along, despite the elbowed winkery. It was Australia Day, and he was losing his grip. That winter, when he'd left his son in the forest, his wife had been moving furniture late into the night. It had been a lean year, and she watched the armchair burn in the wheezing dusk. There were three of us in that house that summer, and by the start of footy season, we were all silver bones in the wet forest. Superman goes crazy because he sits and thinks about it in the dark like anybody else. Ah, oh, jeez. You can't see me, but I'm sitting here just shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> It is so fantastic. It's exactly well, thank you. the creepy, dark, um, just seethingness about it that I love. The moving of the furniture, something <laughs> about that just. Well, that's that's oh. the thing I was trying to ex- explain in the in the in the folk tale. You know, it's the it's the evil stepmother, and I was thinking without saying, "Ooh, they sent their children off to die." You know, it, it's. Uh, so it's, you know he'd left his son in the forest and his wife had been moving furniture meaning like he's she said get the, get rid of these kids and then she's while he's out doing that she's rearranging the furniture in a way that she likes you know <laughs> oh okay all right this is completely yeah. so i guess when i when i read it and I, I read it quite a few times and i listened to your recording on red room um yeah. i definitely interpret it as it's a family where something goes horribly wrong and the father figure, the Superman figure, mm. um, he, he shoulders all that and he's, he's, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's left sitting in the dark room just thinking about what's happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's not wrong. Yeah. I, mean, I don't, I, I, it's not an, incur- like you can't know what all the background and I don't want you to have all the background. I just want that to be sitting underneath it bubbling away, you know. So you can kind of feel it, but you don't know why it feels so horrible. And that's because it's like an ancient, horrible story. <laughs> it's an ancient <laughs> horribleness. In, yeah, it's, it's informing it, you know, and uh, it it, uh, it seems to have done the job if you're creeped out. But, yeah, like I guess that, that sort of 
that the 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 last stanza was uh you know everybody knows that everyone knows that feeling where think something's not right and you're just left you know everybody you could you can talk and and sort of do do as much as you can to sort of get over something but you know that that night you've got to go to bed in the dark by yourself and and stare at the ceiling and and be bombarded you know with with every horrible scenario and uh i think everybody kind of knows that feeling you know everybody knows the loneliness of of being in your body and not really as much as people try and help you 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 are sort of locked in you know and there's as much as people can help you nobody can help you yeah, you just described pretty much every single evening of my life. That's, uh, <laughs> that's quite incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and I think it, it's not just that I'm creeped out, though. I feel this great um, compassion and sadness to the Superman character. I feel yeah. like, uh, not that I want to rescue him because he's kind of unrescuable, but I, there's, mm. it's not just scary creepy weird it's there's there's a compassion in it as well i think um i think that's kind of why i used superman because yet again such a you know everybody knows who superman is he's been around for quite some time Mm. and he's been represented in many ways but as a sad man sitting in a room on his own no you know superman doing nothing (laughs) that's what it should be called superman does nothing um, but yeah, it's, it's this, it's this all powerful character, this superhuman character and he's got to deal with it too, you know, and everybody feels superhuman at times in their life and everybody feels utterly helpless at times in their life, you know, and I guess that's something that I like to remind people of that you can put on a brave face, but you know, everybody's got something that's, that's eating away at them, you know, and that's, that's the, the modern human, isn't it? It's yeah. a, a, a sort of a, a mixed bag. Yeah, that last line, just like everybody else, there's a real like encircling of everyone in that line too, which is yeah, is really yeah. Well, I guess really that's helps. that is poetry is me talking to everyone. You know, this is I, I've been writing in that sort of blocked out kind of uh, almost confusing sort of way since I was a little kid. You know, I really have. I, I remember doing, you know, you're in primary school and they make you do a diary. Dear diary, you know, and you write what you did on the weekend or whatever it was. Um, and I never wrote straight out, I did this, I did that. It was always, I was always trying to make it funny, you know. And <laughs> when I think back about that, and I, I can't remember anything I actually wrote, but it looked like my poems, you know. <laughs> and I sort of, yeah, I, I I didn't want anyone to understand what I was writing in my diary. And that was the best way I could find to do it, to just sort of encode it. And, uh, yeah, that that's that's where it sort of started, you know. I, I really – and when I was actually introduced to poetry, it just made sense straight away. I ne- I've never been confused by it. It's, it's something that – I feel like that's the – that's the clearest kind of communication I can make. You know, that's the most honest I'm ever going to be. And the most 
fearless is on paper in a, in a poem. 